Welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. We have a great episode today. Today's episode is with comedian Ryan Goodcase. Had a great chat with Ryan about comedy, about surviving this insane world of stand-up comedy. And uh, I really got to know him. And uh, he always seemed like a cool guy. I, I've only met him recently in the comedy circuits around here and never really had the, the real uh, time to sit down and chat with him. Uh, but I'm glad I did. Uh, I think there's a, a lot I could learn from him and uh, and I had a good time. I had a good time with Ryan. But before we get there, we do have a segment today. Today's segment is Weird New World with Ryan Sudakran. And today Ryan's going to talk about urban housing in overpopulated areas. It was a very interesting discussion and uh, it just tells you how crazy uh, ideas are out there about trying to fix this overpopulation problem that we are currently having in many cities but if you haven't already i gotta remind you guys already that please subscribe to the gms podcast on itunes soundcloud on google play and on stitcher radio you can follow the gms podcast on your social media on uh let's see you can follow gms podcast on facebook twitter and instagram and help support the gms podcast by going to patreon and uh just donating a dollar that's all I could use. Just a dollar or any other amount you'll like. Help this thing going. Because uh, I'm, I'm in need of some new equipment for sure. These headphones have just been... Uh, just They've been a problem lately. Alright, let's get the show on the road. Here is Ryan Sudakran in a new segment of Weird New World. Welcome to another Weird New World with Ryan Sudakran. Hello. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing good. What are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about the future of housing. Now, are we talking about urban housing or just housing in general? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think the primary focus is urban housing because there's uh, this, this kind of population problem, which yeah. has been in the news a lot, like how, you know, by 2030... They say 60% of the population will be living in cities. So how are cities going to mitigate that influx? All right. So let's, let's, let's get into it. Okay. So um, just a little like statistic I pulled from a uh, UN migration report. Approximately 3 million people are moving to cities every week. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is, I don't... Is this like worldwide? I think it's world. So I think it's a worldwide average. And I think by cities, they mean like the big hubs, like capitals of places and stuff. Uh, I don't know exactly how they pulled the data, but from a UN report, I'm guessing that there's some sort of legitimacy to it. Uh, so I'm, I, I can believe that, right? A lot of people, that's where all of the highest paying jobs are. Uh, if you're trying to get into a technical field or something you know, new. So three million a week. Wow. It's huge, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so these, these issues are, uh, are present, right? So uh, you have to figure out um, how, how to how to accommodate everyone in cities. So uh, one thing is micro apartments. Japan has already implemented them in Tokyo where they're like really, really small spaces. So uh, less than 400 square feet, you kind of have like your kitchen and there's a small partition in your bathroom and then your bedroom is like a little enclave mm-hmm. and everything folds out, right? Everything you need to fold out will fold out and you have to be very efficient with space. So if you're a single person, you can live in that. 
If not, it's going to be very hard. But it is cheap and space efficient, uh, at least in the way they're used in Japan. In one of the world's most crowded cities, Tokyo, couples are cramming into 250 square foot homes. Take this house, crammed into a space the size of one parking spot, the width between the walls just inches. Now, how much of a factor is it having such an environment like that in the human condition? Do you feel like uh, the Japanese population benefited from such small apartments? You know, I don't know. Uh, Japanese culture is really weird. Like, uh, <laughs> Japanese culture is very weird. I'm, okay, sure, well, I'm sure they would appreciate that. I mean, I'm sure they, they're aware of their weirdness. Um, but, um, of course, that's just uh, coming from me. Um, the thing is, like, I think in Japan, there's a huge, like, work culture. So your work is kind of everything, you know? I don't think they care as much about how spacious the, the amount of space that Americans like the the value of your living situation is different I think in that country than it is for a conventional American country because like American, it's, an, it's a couple islands so I think they're aware of the limitations yeah, yeah exactly so yeah. like just by they have to build like this right just based on the space and Tokyo is so small um, in comparison right or, or Japan is small so they have to accommodate and that's why like a lot of Japanese things are like really clever and you know easy to store is because they had they came up with this ingenuity just based on the need mm -hmm. you know the lack of space and whatnot so it's cool I, if you see a lot of pictures of these micro apartments it's really cool uh how uh clever uh the furniture is and the setup and whatnot so that's so that's one solution that people have proposed to bring to the u.s and places that don't have this another one is kind of in the future but uh have you seen the movie dread did you watch that movie? Uh, which uh, which version? The Stallone version? The, new the, the recent? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, so in that movie, they had these like massive apartment complexes. Do you remember? Yeah, the huge projects. Yeah, the projects. So those projects, it's kind of like... Um, it's It's been an idea in sci-fi for a long time where there are these kind of uh, skyscraper cities. Mega City One is a city that runs down the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. And it has about a 400 million population. The rest of America is pretty much a nuclear wasteland. Within the city are these immense buildings, these mega blocks. Each mega block is literally what we would think of today as a self-contained city. And that's where the action of our film takes place. So they're self-contained cities inside of buildings. So ideally these buildings uh, would be like huge structures that would contain like hospitals, schools, Stores it's like a little microcosm. It's a little micro, itself. yeah, exactly. And, and and they would even contain their own self-sustaining agriculture, like vertical farms, because a lot of farming technology now is moving to that, where you can you can grow plants either by importing soil into your vertical farm, or by using hydroponics, like nutrient-rich water. Is there an active organization uh, pushing this forward? There's a lot of like startups that are doing vertical farming. Yeah, it's it's a new, it's kind of a new push mm -hmm. for for produce. Uh, actually, I believe the Samsung building nearby here has a bit of... I don't think it's specifically for, like, fruits or... But they have greenery, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, they're really putting plants uh, on top of the structures. Yeah, Facebook like has the same thing, uh, the Facebook campus. So it's it's a new, it's like, it's very hip in the Silicon Valley to have that. Do you feel like this might cause a uh, redwood tree effect where there's certain uh, organisms, organisms that live in certain parts of, of the redwood tree that some of them never in their lives would even see the ground or feel the ground. There's, there's my, uh, organisms on the bottom of the tree that will never ever be, you know, reach the top of the redwood Possibly. tree. Possibly. I mean, there's people who never leave their hometown. 
And a hometown in terms of square area would be around the same as this building. So, right, yeah. but but we're talking about a huge building that's self, you know, uh, uh, sustainable. Yeah. And w- with all you need in there. Yeah. If you can live and work in that building, uh, if you're the type of personality that doesn't want to explore, why would you ever need to leave? A lot of people live their lives, work, go home, drink a couple of beers, go to sleep, work, go home. That's it. That's their life. So that would be their life in this building because that's their life outside, right? Okay. So I don't. I, I would see that as a very likely thing, you know? Especially recreation and movies. Everything is there, you know? Right. Like, you wouldn't need to venture out, ever. Like, where are you from? I'm from uh, Tower 5. Yeah, exactly. That could be very real. You, you sound almost like you're looking forward to it. I'm not. I just like the... I like thinking about that as a possibility. It's interesting. Okay. I mean, I would move from Tower 5. That shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what else is going on? Um, so on that same uh, idea, there are some cities uh, that are that have building regulations, right? Due to uh, nearby airports and stuff like San Jose, for example, can't have big skyscrapers. Right, because so, the airport's so close. The airport's so close. Which I found out that it, that's not common. You know, I had a lot of international friends visit, and, and they were like worried. They're like, man, mm-hmm. these planes are too close. Yeah. And I guess it, it's not common for a city to have an airport so close to its uh, uh, downtown area. Yeah, yeah. So, that, see, that's one thing. So, for cities like that, I think Mexico City has a similar problem because Mexico City has some sort of height regulations. I was reading up, there's this group um, that wants to make a thing called a, uh, it's a firm. They, they want to make a thing called a, an earth scraper, which is an inverted skyscraper. So it would be an underground pyramid, an inverted pyramid that goes down 65 floors with about 10 floors of housing and the other floors for commercial business. Into the earth. Into the earth. Esteban Suarez is a Mexican architect. And what he did was he looked at this particular square in Mexico known as Zocalo Square, which is this historic square. And it's so dense and there's no more space for any buildings anywhere. So he and his company came up the plan. They said the only solution for this is let's build down. But he's being very ambitious because he's not only saying let's build down. He says let's build down by 55 stories. Which, you know, I think that idea came about before the earthquake. Because uh, uh, I don't think it would make sense now because of that fucking earthquake. What's the, what, what was the selling point of that? Uh, extra space, right? A new housing uh, building that wouldn't take up space, and because of Mexico's height regulations, it wouldn't, you know, um, contradict that. So they'll build downwards. They'll go downwards. And people literally live in caves. Well, so it wouldn't be caves. So the, the way they designed it is it's a total, it's like a, a, a tempered, uh, like a tempered glass top, like a very hard glass top, so sunlight would penetrate all 64 levels down. Mm-hmm. And so the the living quarters are on the sides, and then there's this just glass ceiling that allows light all the way down to the edge of the pyramid. Mm. And so you're not they're not blocking out any light whatsoever. So just like the the tower city that we're talking about, but downwards. Yeah. Another another idea. So we we talked about going up, going down. Uh, there's another pretty big uh, idea in some circles called uh, floating cities. And so floating cities are there's th- that term is used for a lot of different types of um, technologies or, or ideas. Um, it's not like a literal floating city. So some of them are. So okay. So the, oh, the ones on. the ones that are the ones that are used now, the ones that are available now or uh, exist now, is uh, 
artificial islands. So man-made islands that branch off of a shore. So it's not really floating. It's right. attached to the shore. Like in Dubai, they have this resort. Um, I forget the name, but it's a it's a resort that's kind of I think it's like the Palm Palm Beaches or something. Uh, that it's in the shape of a palm tree made with artificially placed so uh, sand and soil and bedrock, mm-hmm. and it's it's just branching out. So it's extra land for the resort, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 just a a little man-made island, right? Which well, is not that far-fetched, right? Well, it's happening in the Caribbean as well, right? Exactly. So this. Uh, this idea would be used for people who are not so rich, hopefully. Uh, if there's overpopulation, maybe build a small island off of a shore if it's possible. Attached to that, there's also this idea of a tethered floating city. So it doesn't have a specific, uh, it doesn't have an actual solid base. It's more of like a boat, like a bigger boat with uh, better support that allows for living. Either so you'd be like living in a cruise line. Kind of living in a cruise line, but you know, it's not a cruise line, it's like a floating object with with the bottom of uh with like a concave bottom or convex bottom to float on there and then some of the clever more clever ideas have um uh rudders at the bottom that uh or turbines at the bottom that can use wave motion to power it so to to spin the the turbine and and charge a battery or even allow for um allow for uh driving the home if need be right so there's all these clever energy solutions attached to having a an offshore living site tethered to the land so there's a whole bunch of groups that are doing that like there's a group in i think uh not switzerland in denmark yeah in denmark that's thinking about doing that those scandinavians the scandinavians are really clever um Oh no, sorry, it's Dutch, not Denmark. I was getting mixed up. So yeah, a Dutch. They're they're called Water Studio. They want to eventually have it such that you can connect these houses and structures, so you make a floating city, so a floating community. And if you don't, and you can choose to connect and disconnect at will. So it's a big plan. It's a big vision. And um, related to that, there's a Peter Thiel is involved. Uh, the guy from you know PayPal guy. Palantir. Uh, he's involved in this thing called seasteading, which is the, the quote-unquote the floating island initiative, mm-hmm. where you could even have your own separate government in the ocean. It's like it's it's its own self-sustained governance in the ocean. But let me guess, Atlantis? Yeah, it would be kind of like an Atlantis. They're like because the world governments don't have jurisdiction over the ocean. So if you create a landmass in the ocean, it's a totally um, secular or it's a totally separate government than anything on land so if you were to have these communities that can connect and disconnect at will you could have a community that you could connect to if you want the benefits of that civilization and then you disconnect when you don't you go back to land it's like if you have the means to live on these boats and like connect and disconnect it's it's, it's an interesting idea it's like a cool experiment in political science to see like how those laws would work out how that form of government would be different you know it's uh some people think it's like a pure democracy in that sense you're not tied to anything uh but i don't know if it'll work out you know it's it's an idea these are all thought most of these are thought experiments right no one has really implemented these in full force yet so so far we got people just building up we got people building down and got people building into the ocean yeah so i also on top of that i keep adding to it uh there's also people i guess building away from civilization so uh a lot of people are getting into these like tiny homes and prefabricated homes things like that uh where it's a self-sustained home 
that you can buy as a unit or as a bunch of pieces of units, like a build your own house. Like Ikea sells this thing called a active, like it's spelled weird, like you know how they spell it, the Swedes. Yeah. And so you can buy it, like you can buy the whole home for around 88K and it comes in pieces and the construction... You have to build it yourself? No, you don't build it. (laughs) That would suck. Fucking Ikea. With a little fucking Allen wrench. With an Allen wrench. (laughs) Building a garage door with an Allen wrench. Yeah. Yeah. yeah hopefully (laughs) maybe you get to save some money if you build it yourself but they have a crew come in and build it for you and a lot of different companies are doing that uh tiny homes are becoming more popular there's also these things called um there's a team in slovakia that's building this thing called an eco capsule that's like a little egg like it looks like an egg uh it's about i think uh, 15 by 7 feet in surface in a in square foot 15 by 7 square foot and like 7 foot high and it has its own wind turbine and solar panels and water filtration system. And you can buy the whole thing for like 100K, 99 to 100K. And that's like a self-contained unit as a house. Like everything's self-sustainable. So you don't have to pay for water bills or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I mean, you have to get water from like a local source. That's their plan. But you don't have to pay for electricity bills. And this is ideal for living in the wilderness if you're that kind of person. Or living away from society. Off the grid. Off the grid. Um so some people are you know playing with that idea thinking about like a lot of yeah a lot of the scandinavians are like yeah certain european countries like that idea mm-hmm. and um and yeah and uh, along with that there's the the prefab houses just like the ikea one where you can you can buy pre-made blocks of a house some people even have modular houses where uh you have a base design but you can add on different designs uh, depending on your preference so you can like, kind of build your own house in a way and then they'll ship you the materials uh, and these are all like less than 100k in most cases so they're these cheaper minimalist alternatives and uh, along with that there's even like there was a uh, something released that some US firm uh, just did an experiment where they built they 3d printed a house out of cement uh, for around 10k in materials so they have this like big crane robot that just kind of like spits out cement like a yogurt machine yeah. but it'll spit it out in a in a pre-made pattern and uh, build it up and then you just in it like the cement is acts as the insulator and then you have a crew come in and just like put up the walls and this may look like an average home but get a little closer and you'll see the multiple layers that created this 3d printed villa it's part of a display in eastern china showing the latest feat in innovative construction and includes this five-story apartment building thought to be the tallest 3d printed building in the world that looks promising and there's also certain groups like this group in uh, this Danish student created a uh, a brick of compressed recycled plastic bags that can stand up to six tons of pressure, and it's like cheap building materials that can be used in third world countries mm. for very little money. So wow. a lot of people are thinking about like these these cheap alternatives to just fucking you know sheet metal and cardboard that can be used in third world countries. So wow, all right, that's pretty uh, cool. We're coming to the end of the segment. Well, what's your lasting remarks? Well, is there a central motif here to the to the situation? For, um, like, how do you think this this new forward thinking of of not just uh, urban planning but housing, you know, people and, and the conditions people are going to be living in, would affect uh, the human race? I heard somewhere uh, that the people in our generation, like twenties and thirties, right now, are less interested in material object and 
material objects and more interested in accumulating experiences. So if that's the case, then everyone's trying to live a more minimalist lifestyle because our life is on our phones, right? Everything we, we do is kind of either digital or interpersonal and we don't really fixate on objects as much. I mean, of course, there's people who collect and whatnot, but I think on, as a whole, we as a generation are moving towards this this uh, this more abstract type of life where we're not driving meaning based on objects. And if that is the case, we're trying to build more minimalist communities and we won't need as much space to live an adequate, fulfilling life. So it could be that just in general, all housing could be moving towards very close communities of apartments or small houses in, in tight-knit communities and the whole idea of maybe even the American dream of like buying this big house and having a couple kids and having this huge plot of land uh, could die out for a different iteration of that so who knows uh, what this where this trend will take us but it seems like it's going in an interesting place mm. alright well Ryan thanks for coming yeah no thanks for having me Please email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your take on this subject. Do you have any ideas of how we could possibly solve this overpopulation problem? Or just in general, how do you feel about uh, about the uh, ideas that were presented to you? Once again, at jmspodcast at gmail.com. I just realized that in this episode, we have two Ryans. There was Ryan Sudakran, who just did his segment. And now we're going to Ryan Goodcase. This episode is like the tale of two Ryans. And, um, yeah, I just realized that. That's pretty funny. I I did not plan that. (laughs) But uh, I guess this is a very much a Ryan-filled episode. So let's head on over to our main guest of this episode, which is Ryan Goodcase. And uh, let's get to that right now. Yeah, I haven't caught on to to Big Mouth yet. Yeah, I'm pretty slow when it comes to the the whole. It's almost better. TV thing. It's better for me to watch a show when the hype's died down. There's not a huge like fan following, and they're posting all the time. I don't know. I don't enjoy it as much when everyone's watching the same show with me. I hear you. I I, I wait a while, a couple years. Like yeah. I remember, I got into the office like. Years after it was yeah. over, yeah, yeah, yeah. X Files as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Who only because I tried to uh, see. Sometimes I watch TV shows just out of spite, <laughs> you know. Like I had, a, I had a, at the time I was living with roommates when I was going through college, and they're really into Doctor Who, and they were international students, and yeah, they're freaking geeks and nerds, yeah, yeah, and uh, and. I was like, you know what? I'm going to out-Doctor Who you guys. <laughs> so I actually started with like the back in the 60s, Doctor oh, Who and, and the 80s. and You know, I enjoyed them, actually. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, I don't know. Do you ever do that? you watch shows out of spite? I don't think that I've ever watched a show out of spite. I'm more the person that won't watch a show out of spite um, or a movie. Like, I have not gotten into Game of Thrones. 
Oh, yeah, I've seen either. maybe two or three episodes, and part of it is just because of the worship around it. I have no interest in really I, watching I've it only seen now. the pilot, and I'm like, yeah, this is not for me. Yeah, yeah, I watched the pilot, too, and, like, the kid gets pushed out the window, and <laughs> yeah. I was like, I know that's supposed to be, like, the big dramatic ending, but I was like, I don't care about that kid. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, maybe I'm just a sociopath, and that's why that show's not good for me. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, these people are all being reasonable. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> um, but, yeah, almost I'm not a big fantasy guy. Like. No. Lord of the Rings never did much for me. Not fantasy, huh? Yeah, yeah. What, I don't know what why. are you more into? Um, I like science fiction to a degree. I like more. Uh, I don't know. I guess realistic dramas, like less, uh, like things that are set in our universe at our time, are more interesting to me than like an alternate universe. Um, I guess if that makes sense. Hmm. Why do you think yeah. that is? Oh, jeez. Do you don't feel know. like you're more present in general? Do you prefer to be in the present? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I I think that, um, I mean, they say a lot of anxiety comes from worrying about either the past or the future. So if I can ever induce, like, being in the present state, I would go for that. I don't know if that applies to what kind of movies I watch. I don't know. Wait, so are you telling me that you don't have anxiety? No, I have plenty of anxiety. Yeah, but... I was about to say, what kind of comic are you without anxiety? <laughs> no, yeah. I, what, but... are you doing this for fun? <laughs> Jesus. No, I, but I, that's what I guess I would strive for. And it's funny, I think about that, um, like, even why I do comedy, because when you're performing, you're very present and very in the moment. You gotta be. Yeah, you've, if you're doing it well, certainly. If you're, like, struggling on stage, it might be because you're worried about, like, whatever. Um and then also when you're watching comedy, you should be in the present. Like, when you're watching good comedy, you should just be engrossed with what they're saying. Right. Joe Rogan always says, like, they should be doing the thinking for you. Uh-huh. Um, so I feel like there's, like, a lot of different art, like comedy, music. They all just induce mindfulness and being in the present. And I think that's, like, a really appealing aspect of art to a lot of people. Interesting. Music, not so... Well, it depends. Sometimes I just mute, put music as background music. Right. So but, I'm not really in in the moment. I'm, like, doing my thing and... What about, perfor- like, playing music, though? Oh, yeah, you got to be in the moment. I hear, right. I hear what you're saying now. Yeah. That sucks. I played a little bit of guitar, and that was, like, an early form for me. I remember early on thinking, like, this is almost like meditation for me because when you're playing guitar like it's very sort of uh it just clears your mind sure does yeah you're you're pretty spot on actually so how long you play guitar you were were you in any bands um well i played with my friend who was a drummer so we were like a two-piece band oh like the black keys kind of stuff that's funny because we uh we put on like a concert for our friends and half of it was black key cover songs (laughs) yeah you got a good taste of music tell you that yeah for sure i'm a big fan of dan arbeck yeah, he's great. I haven't listened okay. too much to his solo stuff, um, but I saw him. Did you see him at uh, what's it called? That folk festival, hardly strictly bluegrass. He was there. Yeah, yeah. This past one. Yes, I had no idea. Yeah, he did a solo set. And he had like a bunch of really old, like studio musicians. Well, that's what his latest album is about. Waiting on a song is that like he's in Nashville and he has uh, a lot of uh, studio, like old school studio musicians on the album. Okay, uh, and it's it's pretty great it's, yeah I, I dig it it's like the th- great thing i love the black keys is that they, they have an evolution themselves mm-hmm. each yeah. album has its own like real aesthetic yeah yeah which, which means that they're really paying attention to, to those kind of things right and the great thing about dan arbeck is that he not only does that but when he does the solo work even his solo work is different from each other yeah because uh, this this is a second solo album and it's definitely more country-ish, country right. rock and roll-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like, a lot of slide guitar when he was playing live. Right, it was yeah. a more classical rock and roll, mm-hmm. while his first solo album was definitely more uh, 
folksy, you know, grinding, um, yeah. hard blues kind of stuff. For sure. That's cool. I'll have to go back and revisit his solo stuff. My favorite of, like, the Black Keys stuff is the earlier stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, like uh, Rubber Factory? Yeah. And I, I, I love I their first album. I got that on album. vinyl, man. Oh, that's cool. It's yeah. Great. It's great. That's, I mean, those were so much fun playing, too, because they're so simple. And, like, if you just, like, crank up the distortion and, like, just my friend would be jamming on drums. It was so much fun to play. What, uh, what guitar did you have? I had a Epiphone Les Paul. Oh, wow. Hey. Yeah. Was that your first guitar? Um, no, my first one, my dad bought from a coworker's son who was just kind of done with guitar. It, oh, God, what was it called? It was a strange guitar. Uh, it was a Phoenix. It was an Electra Phoenix. That's what it was. Hmm. Um, and I tried looking it up. The only person of any note that ever played one of those was Peter Frampton. And, like, not continually. It's just, like, maybe one picture with him holding one. Yeah. Um, I got mixed feelings about that guy. Me, Peter Frampton? Yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah. Like, I, I, I respect him and the legacy I guess he has, but uh-huh. I was like, I, I can't really get into it. Yeah, no. I mean, that, you shouldn't, I feel like you shouldn't have to feel like you should be forced to get into an artist because of their regard, you know? Like, there's so many people that like certain bands that um, I just can't get into, and the people like all the same bands I do, and this additional one, so I feel the pressure to be like, what am I doing wrong? Like, Portugal the Man is one of them. All my friends love this band, and I, I can't stand them. I can only stand like a couple of their singles. Yeah, like yeah. I, I tried to listen to a whole album, I couldn't. Right, but there's certain songs I do enjoy. Yeah, okay, that's fair. And then there's yeah, there's bands like that too. Um, but I feel like life's too short, you know, like finish a book you don't like or to put yourself through a band that you don't want to listen to. It's like yeah. there's so much out there. I'm not gonna spend my time trying to like get into what's popular <laughs> right now. For me, is uh, the Strokes. Oh, you don't like the Strokes? It's like I could listen to a, a hit song here and there, mm-hmm. but once I try to get into the albums, like I just. I can't. That's fair. Which, which is weird because I'm really into the whole, you know, the, the the New York punk scene that was happening at the time. Yeah. Which is I heard amazing story mm-hmm. that came out of that. Yeah, yeah. But it's like I can't listen to an entire album of these of the Strokes. You know, now that you mentioned that, I don't know that I've ever listened to a full album. It's just they seem like they have a lot of singles or popular songs that I kind of jive with. But yeah, but no, that is a cool scene. Have you seen um, the documentary uh, Kill Your Idols? Not yet. Uh, I, I heard about it. Really good. It's yeah. Based on a book, right? Um, I'm not familiar with the book, if it okay. is or not, um, but the documentary is really good. So they follows um, the it was the no wave scene they called it in the '80s, and then the like post punk movement in like the early 2000s in New York, and they kind of compare the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorite sort of like editing jobs is there's this artist named Lydia Lunch, and she's kind of shitting on current music. She's like, all these bands think they're so punk, like it's all the same. It's just like same chord progressions it's like why doesn't someone learn a tuba a band needs to learn a tuba and then it cuts straight to a gogol bordello concert and one of their guys is playing a tuba and it's like that's perfect like whoever edited that needs like a an oscar or whatever i loved it (laughs) have you seen have you are you familiar with gogol bordello uh no oh they're really cool gotta check them out yeah for sure it's like uh they call themselves gypsy punk and Ah. the lead singer makes a point of getting uh all like international artists from like all different countries and um, backgrounds and things and they kind of um their style of music infiltrates their records they do like uh, different um like cultural influences throughout all their songs but all their live performances are really like energetic and they're like in the audience and uh just going crazy i love it it's so much fun. i've been to like three concerts oh man where are they from um 
so they started in New York. They were part of that uh, like post-punk movement. That's where they like all kind of congregated. The lead singer is from Ukraine originally. Uh, that's where the Gypsy site comes from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and then the bassist is from I'm not sure, sure what country in Africa. Um, and they've got someone. They're accordion Very players from Japan. Di- diverse. Yes. Uh, band. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's part of his like uh, kind of his goal or his mission statement. Yeah. But as far as you, you 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 played music for what for fun? Um. Yeah. You, you, you never took it seriously. Like you want to take it to the road or like no. like were you performing in in venues? No, I perform in front of friends. That's as far as it went. Um. Yeah, I don't. I feel like I don't really have the ear for it. I don't know if it's the ear for it or the patience for it. Were you like, the singer as well? I can't sing. Um, so was it your drummer the singer? <laughs> we went back and forth because neither of us could sing. Like I, I have sang for some of those performances, but yeah. neither of us liked it. We both hated it so much. I can't sing for shit. I'm still going at it. That's your excuse. Come on. <laughs> well, good. I mean, if if it's what you want to do, I just like I felt so uncomfortable, and I'd much rather like I guess be uh, a a lead guitarist or even like a rhythm guitarist that's just not worrying about singing like Mm -hmm. so i could be focused on guitar playing yeah um but we couldn't find anyone that would sing for us either (laughs) like yeah i remember for me in the beginning it was hard to play the guitar and sing at the same time yeah yeah i kept getting off rhythm or off Mm -hmm. time because i'm like concentrating on the singing it's it's dude yeah it's a it's whole tough. different form of, of performance you're right and then you start to appreciate the like the artist that can sing and play like intricate guitar at the same time oh yeah like Jimi Hendrix is a classic example when he's like playing the vocal melody and singing at the same time like that's super impressive um, and then I saw a band about a year or two ago called Maps and Alices have you ever heard of them they sound familiar they're like a. They started out as math rock, and then they became more like alternative rock or whatever. But he would play some the craziest guitar licks while singing, and it would just blew my mind. That's the kind of thing I don't know if I appreciate if I didn't play guitar myself and try to do it. Where I'm just like, all right, I'm gonna do three chords very simply, and then I'll be able to sing. Right. And even then, it won't be good. <laughs> <laughs> we can just get through this song. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same way. All my, all my most of my songs are are four four beats. Yeah. Just yeah. keep it nice and simple. You know, good head bobbing rhythm. Right. Right, right. And then, yeah, it gets there. Now, did music come before comedy, or did that come after? Yes, yeah, music came um, before comedy. I started playing in, like, seventh grade. Um, and I still pick it up occasionally, but I was taking lessons in the beginning, and I feel that when I stopped taking lessons, my progress, like, really started to decline. Like, I, I wasn't growing as fast as I was as when I was taking lessons. Were you taking lessons in school or out of school? Like out of school. Out of school? Yeah, I had a really cool guitar teacher. and uh, So it seems like for you to be taking lessons, uh, you, your parents were really backing you up on this Oh, yeah, adventure. definitely, yeah. They, were they musicians themselves? No, no, they weren't. Um, that's kind of funny. Yeah, now that you mention that, they've really been supportive of both music and comedy. And comedy? Yeah. Jesus. I know, right? What parents you got here? But I'm, like, destined to fail, because, like, if you're going to be a good artist, you are got to be working against your parents, right? So uh, I'll man. probably just be mediocre my entire life. I'll quit comedy in seven years and, like, pick something up. Else. Well, if you, it's not too late. You just got to pick on something to, to start, you know, some, yeah. some uh, tensions between your parents. <laughs> just start making problems that aren't there. Yeah. What, what do your parents do? Um... My dad is a like security director at a pharmaceutical company, uh-huh. so he makes sure that like is drugs it, don't get stolen or right. like animal like activity. for Pfizer or something. That's funny you say that. That's where he worked in Michigan when I lived in Michigan. That's where he worked. Um, 
you're from you're close from Ann Arbor, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, what industry is not in Michigan, really? Right. Yeah. No. So it was it was weird. They weren't expecting that plant to close down Pfizer. That's why we moved. I, I don't think anybody expected the the Detroit automobile <laughs> yeah, go down. Or yeah. The, no. Uh, handful of other factories it, there. That it was there. sad. Those like last few years I spent, there were so many people moving out of Michigan, and I think that was like kind of the trend. Like I'd had aunt uncles in uh, Arizona, and they were saying, "Yeah, all these people are coming from Michigan." Oh, wow. Um, so there's kind of like a, a second like flight out of the state. I think it's not like that anymore. I, I don't know if it's growing or if it's kind of maintaining its current like population, but I think the economy's improving uh, quite a bit. But obviously there's still problems. I mean, like we know about Flint and all that. So right. there's definitely some issues. How far is Ann Arbor from Detroit? About 45 minutes. That's pretty close. It is, yeah. And Detroit that w- themselves have a great rock and roll uh, history. Totally. Bob Seger and the uh, and Bob Seger system. Mm-hmm. Early Bob Seger. Have you heard of his stuff? Um, I'm familiar with some Bob Seger. No, but like his early stuff. Not his early stuff. Not not no. his pop hits. No, no, no. Oh, dude. It's, is it good? Sh- yeah. All right. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. But okay, so you're you're in Ann Arbor. Your, your father is security director at mm. Fi- not Pfizer, but pharmaceutical companies yeah, in general. Yeah, he was at Pfizer. Now he's um, they're living in Utah. He's at a different pharmaceutical company. Um, and then my mom works uh, at a community college, doing like administrative stuff. Oh, like that. Yeah. cool. She it, was uh, she was a librarian when I was young, though. So I think that kind of influenced me in uh, liking to read, uh-huh. um, and that I feel like sort of gave me uh, interest in just like language or words in general. So I feel like my comedy can be a little bit wordier than most people's. So um, you were very much involved with uh, uh, literature and stuff? Yeah, like? yeah. Sorry, yeah. dude, I'm being so rude. Fucking no, that's cool, man. I, I, usually, no I, it is, I forgot to put my, my phone on airplane mode. Oh, I got you. Yeah, no worries, man. You got my undivided attention for sure. <laughs> right. Um, but... Uh, so you were surrounded by literature? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I still love to read. Um, Do you write? No. I had a fantasy of becoming a writer for the longest time, but I wasn't really writing, which is kind of important to become a writer. Um, well, it depends. What kind of writer would you fantasizing to be like? For a long time, I was fantasizing being an author. Like, I love the idea of, like, making fiction. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, and I guess I did write a little bit, a tiny bit, when I was in high school, but uh-huh. it wasn't something I was passionate about. Um, and I've kind of, I'm torn between the philosophy of you should go towards your passion, like it should feel like what you love and you should be motivated internally, and then like you should kind of have to force yourself to work and like do this regimen that like keeps you on track for doing whatever this artistic uh pursuit is if that makes sense it does yeah. and that's the hardest part is having that discipline mm-hmm. you know with, with um, music and with uh, comedy you almost see the results of it instantly yeah I totally. got a joke premise go on stage and mm-hmm. see if it works out you yeah know, music you play a riff or whatever and definitely uh, but when it comes to writing it's such a long process mm-hmm. that's easy for you to be like halfway just you know lose interest or halfway right. of like realizing I don't like the story or yeah. stuff like that. Like for yeah. me, I'm a screenwriter, you know. Oh, okay, cool. I, I think I would love to branch out to not, uh, you know, writing fiction. Mm. But that's the hardest part is, is really um, cutting the bullshit with yourself and be like, all right, I got to make time to write. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's... But how come you stopped? How come I stopped? I, I, you had everything going for you, supporting parents. <laughs> 
I just I don't I didn't have that sort of internal motivation. Like with doing stand up, it doesn't feel like sometimes it feels like a chore, but a lot of time it's like it's what I want to do. If I stay home and I don't go out to a mic, I feel bad about it. It was never that way with writing. Like I loved not writing. <laughs> like if I was if I made an excuse to watch a movie or like read a book or do whatever, that I felt no guilt doing that. Um, so I feel like I took that as kind of a cue that maybe it's not really what I want to be doing. Like the I, I like the idea of being a writer um, and like having these thoughts or ideas that turn to a book that make people like, oh wow, this guy's really smart. But the actual act of writing, I don't know if I was um, like actually liked. I mm. guess it's funny that you mentioned they you know to have people see you as someone who's smart. Do you, do you worry about that? I don't. I, I I don't actively worry about it. But sometimes, like when people ask, like, oh. Um, why do you do comedy? If I'm, like, being, like, cruel to myself, it's like, oh, I just want people to think I'm clever. Like, I think that's might be partially, like, the selfish motivation behind it. Because someone said, like, oh, what do you talk about in your comedy? Um, and I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know if many comedians do. It's like, we talk about whatever. But it's like, I just want people to think I'm clever, you know? Like, I just want to get that laugh. Like, oh, that's kind of smart. You know, it's funny. I think at its core, I think that's what most comedians think of themselves. As being clever. Right, right, yeah. I'm totally going to change, uh, I'm totally going to deconstruct the dick joke. <laughs> yeah. <know>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's another thing, like, why I don't really feel motivated to write is I feel like at this point in my life, I don't have a whole lot to say or, like, a perspective that that's very different. Hmm. Um, and in my comedy, I don't feel like I'm too personal right now. Like, I don't introduce a lot of personal material. It's more kind of, like, surface level. And I want to move towards being more personal in my comedy, um, but I'm also comfortable right now just working on sort of, like, the joke, like, just getting those skills of being able to tell a joke and to craft a set and to stay on time. And I feel like once I have those skills, and then when I'm, like, an adult, whenever that happens, like, 30 or whatever, and I actually have, like, some perspective on life, then I can start to introduce that. Right, right. No, I think that's a good way to look at it. That's a good way to... Um blueprint it uh mm. it's learn the fundamentals yeah yeah you know really get i think that's very important definitely um and so when did you start comedy necessarily like you was it you you quit you quit playing music uh, the, yeah those didn't i started sophomore year of college is when i started comedy um and they, what college are you going to eastern michigan university what, so, is, it, what is it known for <laughs> um Good question. It's got a good business school. Okay. It's got a good business school um, in Michigan. And then uh, I'd say it's like science. It's education is second, and then sciences are third. And that's what I did. I was in the science, um, psychology, and biology. Um, but yeah, to be, uh, starting to be a brain ninja. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay. Um, but I wasn't, uh, I don't know. I was right next to U of M. So I'm 15 minutes away from University of Michigan, which is this giant school. Um, and it's sort of like intimidating um, being that close to that school and like seeing all these people that are like the, uh, you know, like status of success or whatever. Like they seem very successful. And even out here when yeah. I'm like, yeah, I went to college in Michigan. People are like, oh, U of M? I have to still be like, <laughs> nope. Um, this small school you've never heard of. <laughs> well, I think I feel. I, I went to San Jose State University right next to Stanford. You know? Right. Yeah. No, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, It feels weird, but I was also, I was comfortable with it because um, I was unsure of really what I'd want to be doing. And uh, I don't want to be... $40,000 in debt 
and unsure of what I want to be doing right now. And I know like there's a lot of people that can make that work and I just don't trust my own level of motivation to pull myself out of that debt and like find what's right. Hmm. Cause I also feel like that puts pressure on you financially. You're like, well, yeah, I don't know what I want to be doing, but I need to be making money. So I'm going to like go down this path and like try to progress myself in this career. Well, right now I'm not like worried about student loans right now. And I'm kind of, figuring out what I want to do and I feel a lot less pressure because of it. So what was happening on sophomore for you to turn to the um, stage? Yeah, so I guess it's something I've been thinking about a few years. Like I had these ideas that I thought were very fun to me and the only sort of platform I could imagine expressing them was stand-up. Um, but then the sort of the catalyst that made it happen was I had some friends that were in this um, comedy group on campus that did both stand-up and improv. Uh, and they're like, you know, you should just come to a meeting. Um, and we, like, just played improv games, um, which was actually a lot of fun for me. Like, I really do enjoy good improv. Um, sometimes it's... I feel like a lot of stand-ups who hate improv just see it at open mics, and it's like, of course you're going to hate it if it's at an open mic. Well, it's... I think when I see stand-ups uh, hating on improv without themselves trying improv, I think it comes from a play of insecurity. How do you mean? Almost, almost envious. Uh, because stand up, believe it, we're sensitive guys we're, we're, yeah. and gals, right? You know, because if the best thing we want our material to be to be done is being validated by mm-hmm. a laugh. Yeah, yeah. If yeah. we don't get that laugh, we panic. Yeah, you know. So, and I think there's jealousy of like, oh, you're you're in a team. Mm-hmm. You're not just by yourself on stage. Yeah, yeah. And you look like you're actually having fucking fun. Yeah. Even <laughs> if your shit's not funny. Totally. Yeah. Like, like who wouldn't want that? Yeah. And, and I find it that, you know, there's, like, for me, like, when I shit on improv, which I occasionally do, <laughs> it comes from insecurities of, like, oh, I just, I'm only hating you guys because I'm jealous that you right. guys, you know, having this much fun. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. No, that's, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head because that's something I miss about the improv group was that community. Yeah. Like, going up there with your friends and then, like, after the show, you're all talking about the same show in the same way. Yeah. Like, you shared the performance. It's not, like, stand-up where you're all talking about your own separate sets. Right. If you're on the same show. So, yeah, I do miss that. Yeah. So, you were doing improv and you are doing stand-up and you were digging it and at the time, before you did that, were you like, oh my god, like, did you enjoy stand-up at the time? Yeah. You know, um, I would think I was just starting getting into it. There was like a few um, like stand-ups that got me. It's so hard to talk about now with Lucy K. Like I want to just mention like he's I'm one the of the guys way. that got me into uh, into stand-up, but yeah. obviously all the controversy around him. But I mean that's what it was when he uh, there was like one of his specials that came out around that time in college, and uh, like I I really loved it and I started going through all this other stuff. Um, so that kind of put stand-up on my radar again. It's sure. so funny how we're both like. I hate you know I hate mentioning Louis C.K. It's uh-huh. like we enjoyed his work. Of of course, you know, right, we right. didn't enjoy what he did. You know, yeah, outside yeah. of work. Yeah, I feel like you can separate it to a degree, and then also like um, keep that included when you need to. Like you like, can view it both ways. Like I was talking to somebody, and I was like, you know, I'm disappointed Louis C.K., but I'm still a fan. Mm. And they got so upset at me. Yeah, it's like I don't know the guy on that level, right. or, or I'm not even involved in that situation. I'm not yeah. support you know condoning. What he did, mm-hmm. but you know, his work has a major integral part in where I'm at with my craft. Yeah, yeah. It's it's I feel like it's really tricky because I wanna view art as like this idealistic, like, oh, it's this person that goes out there, they do their thing, and then we judge it. 
but there I feel like there's this whole system built up around it with like money and like who gets opportunities and how they're presented and if that's wrapped up in like um like hiding these sexual allegations like especially with like Weinstein or whatever um that's when it gets tricky for me you know because I want to be able to just say like oh we can just consume this art but if it's like integrated in with all the business and politics and all that bullshit then it's hard to do that I feel like but, yeah. But saying that, I don't think it's fair to really put Louis C.K. with Weinstein. I think Weinstein oh, yeah, was, no, yeah. was a far worse mm-hmm. uh, a person and a straight-up predator, you know, mm-hmm. like straight straight yeah. up. And on top of that, Weinstein was not really on the creative level. I think he was more of, of the financing and right. producing. Like The reason why I compared him is um, a lot of comedians, you'll hear them say, it's like we knew about these Louis C.K. allegations for years. Um, and there have been like opportunities where they tried to come out to talk about them in the past um, and they got sort of shut down. And so it's like that idea of a system sort of protecting him for whatever reason it is. That's what like that's the similarity I drew between the two because mm-hmm. like people knew about Weinstein for obviously years and years and years, but like they couldn't come out because of the system built around to protect him. I hear you. But yeah, definitely his is more extreme than Louis C.K. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying they should be <laughs> tried yeah, I, I the same you. way. Yeah. So, but you, you're here. You saw one of his specials. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. And uh, so the first time I performed at a student showcase, it was like too, um, it was like too perfect of a first performance than with most stand up. Like if you go to an open mic, like that's kind of shitty. But uh, like the student showcase, there was like 75 to 100 people. Um. A lot of them were people that knew me to some degree. Like, we weren't close, but they're like, oh, yeah, I know Ryan. Um, so I think that gave me sort of an advantage of doing well because I had a great set. Like, I have it recorded still, which would terrify <laughs> most people, like, having their first set recorded. But actually, yeah. like, it, and great in the sense that I got laughter, not that yeah. I was, like, well-crafted or whatever. You were killing it. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a great set. And that, like, was, like, a great feeling that really pushed me through, like, the next 20 shitty open mics of me. Like, oh, I'm going to do stand-up. So I, like, go to this place. And I'm like, why am I not getting the same response? And it's like, oh, because they're not my friends, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So once I got past that, um, it was it was fine. Like I stayed motivated. Um, but the yeah, the college show was I think one of the reasons why I got such a big response is I get all the time from like family members or friends um, or coworkers like oh I can't believe you do stand up like you don't seem like someone who would do stand up <laughs> because I'm like very quiet and kind of reserved. Yeah. Um, and people I guess have like the class clown. Yeah. vision of like a, a stand-up which which i find extremely annoying when i see them yeah doing stand-up. <laughs> yeah yeah you can tell you can tell like that kind of person that tries to take the stage and it just doesn't translate and they're always on off and on stage yeah like, shut the fuck up dude like anyway yeah there's a few people like that that i actually find really funny and I, i'm like sort of envious of the people that are just naturally funny because i don't i don't think i'm naturally funny i think it does take like preparation for me um but I appreciate like both sorts, like the people that are very prepared and uh, like write material, and the people that are more off the cuff and just naturally funny. But anyways, I think that's one of the reasons why I did well is because all these people that knew of me as the quiet kid, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he told like a well crafted joke. Like I'm gonna like it would just caught people off guard, mm. um, and that was yeah, it was a, a good motivator to keep doing it. I think. So after that, you know, you got the bug, mm-hmm. you got that hit of yeah, comedy yeah. heroin, yeah, and you're just chasing that high. Yeah. What places were you hitting up? Like, was there a, a comedy open mic scene happening around where you're going to school? 
a, a little bit, yeah. So there was one open mic, a weekly open mic um, in the city that I went to school in. And I went to that one pretty consistently. And that one was funny because it, it was one of those that rarely had an audience, um, but it had like a really good community of comedians like the like regular comedians that would always be there and they would actually be supportive and like listen to your set or whatever um and wow. that, yeah wait, i know wait, whoa <laughs> pretty foreign right it's the midwest we're a lot kinder there <laughs> um <laughs> so that was a lot of fun um i, I kind of miss that and then there's uh the ann arbor comedy showcase it was it's sort of akin to um rooster teeth feathers like their wednesday show mm-hmm. where they would have i think it was on a wednesday they would have you enter this raffle and if you got picked you could perform and it'd be in front of a good audience in a comedy club and i always loved doing that i had a great time like i i don't think i ever had a bad set there the three or four times i went it was always a good time um and then yeah detroit's got a bunch of open mics the suburbs around detroit's got a bunch of good open mics um yeah so we just like started hitting those yeah. and how long, how long were you doing comedy over there uh before you moved over here about a year and a half two years uh i was a lot less motivated that i am now like i was doing a lot less in michigan um, well i think you were in a comfortable state you know place yeah you, you, certainly i don't think standard was was definitely on your on your mind all the time yeah yeah no i think that's true because you were living a life yeah yeah i was in college i was happy like yeah. i i was felt like oh yeah i got this plan and then when that all crumbled so i was like yeah gotta well, go up seven times a week where did it all go wrong <laughs> Uh, I guess graduating, man. Like, college is just such a good, like, support group or, like, social group. Yeah. You have all these friends you can do stuff with. Yeah. And then when you graduate and go on to adulthood, it's like, all right, uh, you got your nine to five. Uh, and then figure out all the rest of the stuff. Like, find your own friends, do this, do that. Um, so I guess, I mean, that's filling up the empty time is, like, stand-up was what I was drawn to. How long since you graduated? Uh, since I, gra- I graduated not last April but the April before, so 2016 April. Yeah, I'm about about let's see. Yeah, I graduated in 2016 as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, dude. Yeah, like first couple month, like month, I was like happy. Uh-huh. Like, cause yeah, your whole fucking life you've been going to school. Uh-huh. Now you're done with it. Right. Then after that, you're like, fuck. What, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, as a scary. you know, for the longest time you had structure, and now you're like, oh, mm-hmm. what? Now I gotta figure shit out. Yeah. And like, <laughs> and they're like, well, don't you figure that shit out in college? It's like, no. I don't think anyone ever figures it out. Like, there's there's a few people that figure it out in college, but um, the rest of us are gonna be swimming around for a while, which I don't mind. Like, I feel comfortable with that right now. Like, I like the idea of. Um, having options and being open to things but i have trouble thinking about my life like 10 years from now or like 20 years from now shit i'm worried about two years yeah two, three years from now yeah because i'm 27 mm-hmm. and once i hit that 30 i'm like i don't know right yeah i don't know it's yeah i feel like a lot of people say that the 30s are like their favorite years though like i hear that with especially with comedians what yeah yeah i've never heard so, that before not like um like our scene but i've heard um comedians that have like some level of success either on podcasts or in their material talk about like their early 30s being some of their favorite years maybe because they take it more seriously they look more adults could be I yeah yeah i would love to be taken more seriously like i feel like i go up on stage and um people think that i'm like a college student Ever since I started uh, hosting the mic at Stanford, I've been introduced as like, oh, this next kid goes to Stanford so many times, <laughs> and I hate it. I hate it so much. 
Like, I want to, um, not that there's anything wrong going to Stanford, but, like, I want to be seen sort of, like, somewhat as an adult on stage, you know? Like, I don't want to be thought of as, like, this college kid. Um, we got that real chillax vibe to you. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, yeah. You, you, even even the way you talk, you're, like, very, very uh, chill. Yeah, but I don't want to be, like, a chill engineer, you know? Like, I don't want people to think, like, oh, he's doing comedy, but he's going to, like, go home to a startup after this and, like, roll around a bunch of money. Like, that's not my background, you know? That's not what I, I have going for me. Jesus. Yeah. You, you, all these worries, man, I told you. All, all these judgments <laughs> I hear you have. I, I, was, I would love to do a show... And then do like one-on-one interviews with each audience member, and be like, "It's like, what were you thinking while I was on stage?" Like, <laughs> just go to one of them. Yeah, like, put put out a survey. Yeah, just like a hundred like question <laughs> survey. I would love to. Like, I fantasize about doing that all the time. So I really just want to know. Are you the oldest of siblings? I'm the youngest. You're the of youngest two. of two. Yeah, my oldest brother is uh, like becoming. Uh, he's getting his doctorate in family and marriage studies. That's that's interesting because so far the 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 you know I'm trying to profile you mm. and, and your insecurities are not common with the youngest of the siblings. Oh really? Were they all brothers? Uh yeah, it's me and my older brother. Yeah, yeah. No, but it was just you two. Yeah, when I said youngest of two, I included myself. Oh, okay. That was kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah, well, what do you think these insecurities come from? Oh gosh. See, my excuse is I'm the middle child. Uh huh. My excuse is that you know I got an older sister that parents you know paid mm-hmm. attention and the youngest who was the baby so and i defend for myself and yeah. try to get some attention right right and i think i think i project that on others okay. sometimes too intensely i can see that i've never i've never thought about it in terms of my birth order but if i was going to try to like psychoanalyze myself um i think i was always sort of attention hungry as a child um and i remember like even when i was very young like my mom had to be like, oh, you know, I have like I have to spend time with your brother too. Like I can't just spend time. Oh, wow. I get jealous of that. Um, my younger brother was the same way, actually. Yeah. See. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I think it might be a younger brother thing. But then I sort of like, uh, and I feel like I might have internalized that guilt of like attention-seeking behavior to where now when I'm in like small groups, I'm not the loud person. Um, I'm like pretty shy. Um, so like I, I I always sort of look down on people who are like I feel like are really desperate for attention um but then all that internalized like uh, like attention that I do want I think I get on stage you know like I've isolated it to this five minutes a night like this is okay this is me being the center of attention and I can go back to being like the modest shy person that I've grown <laughs> into yeah that's that's my best psychoanalysis of yeah. where that comes from it makes sense yeah Makes sense. Yeah. Now, did you always have this performing stand-up, or was it something you developed? Say that again? Like, this anxiety uh, of, uh, of... Of how I'm perceived? Yeah. Um, I think it's somewhat more recent, because, you know, I didn't... I feel like I didn't really consider how I'm perceived and how it affects my comedy, because that's honestly what I'm most worried about. Like, my joke's not hitting because of how people are perceiving me. Because I remember, uh, it's happened to me a few times... Where I have this joke where I like break down uh, a 50 cent lyric from Into Club. I just like break down this thing that he says. And a few times people have come up to me like, God, that's like, that's a really good joke. It's funny that like, you know, like you're a nerdy guy um, and you're breaking down this 50 cent song. 
which to me like that was never part of the joke like it was never supposed to be like oh yeah i'm a nerd and i'm talking about rap or hip-hop it's just supposed to be like this is a funny lyric yeah so i started thinking about it then <laughs> it happened recently too at uh rooster feathers i was at a i was performing at one of the wednesday nights um and i had a good set and the manager's like you know you'd be really great for um don mcmillan show i'm gonna talk to heather and see if you can do don mcmillan show hey look uh, at you and i was like oh wow this is great i didn't do the show but she was like recommending me or whatever and i was like oh this is great and i walk over to one of the comedians and i was like yeah it like went well the manager said she might put me on don mcmillan show you told us to another comedian yeah and then the other Dude. comedian's like oh uh you mean the nerd night and i was like of course. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what she meant. Was I'd be perfect for Nerd Night. <laughs> like that's what the show is called. Was this comedian a close friend of yours? Uh, he's not a close friend. He's a good guy. He wasn't being mean. He was uh, just saying that. That's a comedian will shut show. that shit down for you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you see another comedian, you know that you barely know who's who's having some motion of success. Right. You're gonna shoot it right down. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I do not think that was his intention. He was just like. He, I think he's actually being supportive. Like, yeah, you would be great for Nerd Night. Who is this? Do I know who it is? Phil Griffiths is the person. Oh no, I'm not familiar with him. Yeah. Oh no. But no, he was he was being completely. Because you, you hang out with Ryan and, and a bit, right? Ryan. Uh, yeah. Sinatra, and, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and Sanj, yeah. And, and uh, we, we rub each other a little bit, but I don't think yeah. I don't think any of us are at the level where we would be like shitting on each other's success. Like if any of us got an opportunity or show, we would be reasonably supportive. Oh, at least yeah, to, of course. to their face, you know. Right. Right. Like, uh, me and Falco are really good friends, and uh-huh. we shit on each other all the time, but we're, we're happy for each other, for yeah. each other's success, no yeah, matter yeah. what. For sure. So it, it's good to develop that kind of kinship. With yeah. Fucking... Anyway, point I'm trying to make here, though, is that it's it's funny uh, that... No, I think it's great that you're getting this much attention at the at, at a club, mm. and they call it the Nerd Night. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's just my point was, like, I was, I was thinking, like, oh, I'm being recommended to do, do, like, a weekend. That was in my mind. I was like, I'm doing, like, going to do a guest set in front of this comedian. Um, and then it was like, no you're a really funny nerd so you'd be good for this nerd night show so yeah. just like one of those funny moments where like my perception of myself didn't really line up with um how other people are perceiving me on stage i hear you yeah i have, I have the same um issue with being recognized as a specific latino comedian mm-hmm. like i like for the longest time i, I try to avoid it mm-hmm. you know like some people have oh latino night or something like that right right and i'm like oh, uh. I, I just you know I want the material to speak for itself, yeah, not yeah. you know used right my race or whatever as a clutch. I don't know. Do you feel like your race influences your comedy a lot? No, not no. at all. Yeah, I mean, uh, early on, I, I knew that you know I, I like to avoid a lot a lot of you know tropes mm-hmm. and just just do things that you know, like you said, like uh, put more of a personal side to your material. Yeah, yeah, you know, because I. I can make what so many Mexican jokes and whatever, and, right? But for me, I, I, that never really attracted me. Yeah, I, I've always looked up to the comedians who get, offer a perspective or offered a, a way of looking at things and such. Yeah, like that. now that distinction is really good because a lot of racial humor I don't like because it relies on tropes. Yeah. It's like not even because I'm sensitive to like race issues, but it's just because like I've heard that joke a million times before in different. The race humor that I like is when people are giving, like, their personal perspective of, like, being a black person in America or being, like, a Latino in America. When they give their personal take on it, that's more interesting to me. Again, but also you have to realize that it takes time to get to that point, I think. Totally, yeah. Because, I mean, I remember, and this is why I was really trying to figure your trajectory in comedy. um, Because I think first year, 
is the funnest, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, after that, because for me, my anxiety developed worse as I, as I went along. Like, mm. when my second, third year, I was in a very similar situation you were. Mm. I'm like, oh, I'm worried about how people are perceiving me. You know, is, is my is my jokes really funny because they're funny? Or is it because, you know, yeah. I'm a Latino or I'm chunky or whatever. Right. And and that that, that really uh, cost me quite a bit of a of panic attacks. Um, but now as you get, you know, I'm like, what, four years in. And now it's like, like you know what? I want to. I just want to be me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 all those years of just eating shit and you know here and there you know mm-hmm. having good sets uh, really trains you that when you are being you, mm-hmm. it, it's a much easier process. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Because in the beginning, a lot of people do dick jokes, a lot of people do race jokes, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see, like I see that like, running for Scotty, like I I see a, a evolution of a lot of local comics. Yeah. Which is always fun to watch. Yeah, that's cool. Because I'm like, I remember when this guy started out, did that <laughs> stupid fucking uh, jokes about, about being gay. Right. Now, you know, he's talking about some real shit. Yeah, and it's yeah. funny. Yeah, that's awesome. How long have you been doing Cafe for Scotty? Over, a little bit over three years now. Oh, so you've probably seen a lot of growth. Uh, uh, yeah, dude. I feel the scene here has developed a lot since. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not trying to correlate it <laughs> because of Frascati, but I, I do, I you know, I I do notice that. Uh, yeah, some people. You, you, I could tell like there's some people who who are only doing it for fun and, and they you know they, mm. they move on and others really stick to it and yeah. really develop it and yeah, yeah. I, I'm always rooting for those people. And it's like, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's cool, man. But you're running Coho, right? How long have you been running that? Uh, only a few months. I actually, I'm kind of going to step back from that for a little bit because, um, I don't know. It's, so there's, it's a student run group that actually runs the mic. I'm just sort of the liaison between Bacon and the Stanford group. Like I get all the Bay Area comedians to come to the show. Um, but do they appreciate that? Yeah, they do. What, what the issue for me is like the people at the Stanford mic or the Stanford group, they just aren't super motivated to do stand up. Like they're in college, they're doing other things. It's like me when I was in college, I'm not super motivated to do stand up. So, like, this week was the third week in a row that the mic got canceled because none of the students wanted to show up. And there needs to be at least one student to run the mic. Oh, that's tough. So, like, I really, I don't want to be associated with, because, like, people think, like, yeah, I run this mic, and if I have to post in Bacon for the third week in a row that it's canceled without a really good reason. It looks ba- bad on yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, I just really don't want that to be part of my reputation. So, it's a shame, because, like, I do like that mic a lot, and I like the hosting experience, but I'm kind of just stepping back from it for a little bit. Have you hosted before? Um, no, that's, uh, I hosted, like, to cover for someone once um but that was like my main hosting experience and then i hosted this wednesday at rooster feathers for the first time nice how did that go it went well um i i'm still a little clunky as a host there's like certain things that i want to get better at and sounding more natural um but i didn't like stutter i didn't like freeze up and my set went really well like i had a good set i have a long way to go then yeah <laughs> three years in i still have a new couple of those no i mean it's uh i feel like it's always it's like we focus mostly on stand-up but hosting is like this whole other skill so like that is going to be a long journey um but i also i had a lot going in my favor because i was at like this comedy club and there was a good audience and they were like ready to laugh and but, if you have a was a, it nerd night <laughs> no, it wasn't Nerd Night. <laughs> it was just the uh, the regular sort of new talent showcase. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it was fun, man. I uh, I enjoyed that a lot. 
and uh, like the manager told me she wanted me back for more Wednesdays to do more of those new talent showcases. Just so I'm glad that I'm at least on their radar, you know. Nice, dude. Yeah. But Coho, you're thinking of moving on? Uh, at least for the time being. I want them, if it becomes more consistent, I'll certainly reach out and be like, hey, if you need someone to host, I'll host. But I'm not going to be like the every week person, you know. Yeah. Hmm. What were some things you, you felt you, you learned from that experience so far? Um, from hosting or just like trying to organize it or both? Both. Um, let's see. Hosting in that room is a good sort of exercise because a lot of times people like you're really springing it on them. Like it's like a lot of open mics where they're just kind of there and there's a pretty big group of people there. And then you're like, Hey, we're about to do comedy and people have no idea it's about to happen. So sort of quieting the room was uh, a skill that I started to learn and like not launching right into material, but doing like whether it's crowd work or just seeing more conversational so that people are like, are more likely to engage. That was one skill that I feel like I learned. Um, another thing was not to be too mean <laughs> because I got into this habit one night. I don't think it was a night that you were there um, where it was a rough night. And every time a comic got off the stage, I would like shit on their set a little bit and like to make fun of them. And I got a laugh for yeah. like the first three or four comedians. Yeah. Um, but then I kept doing it and then I think people started to feel bad. Like they weren't laughing anymore. And I started to feel like a dick. Like I would be like, uh, I remember with Faco specifically, I was bringing him up. And I was like, this next guy is one of my favorites in the area. I give it up for Faco. Um, and he had a rough set. And I, I come back, get on stage, and I'm like, well, he was one of my favorites. <laughs> and then, like, immediately, <laughs> as soon as I get off stage, I'm like, dude, I'm just playing. Like, you know, I love you. And he's like, yeah. I was like, I was so concerned that he thought I was actually being a jerk. Like, I couldn't. <laughs> it, it, it depends, man. It depends how close you are. Like, yeah, for Scotty, yeah. I, I, do, I do roast a bit, uh, uh, you know before and after they're on stage mm. but you know i wouldn't do it to someone who's doing it for the first time oh, yeah, no, or no. someone i didn't know yeah um and, you know and I, I learned that when i when i'm hosting having shitty days mm-hmm. or shitty nights i just go straight to the performers you know just uh, you know yeah that makes sense over to the show and and before the end of the night you feel much better you know yeah uh, well at least i do because you know i listen to comedy and they make me laugh and i feel much better right um that makes sense but but yeah i, I hear you. I, I don't I, it's not too bad Mm-hmm. You shouldn't worry. I mean, it depends how close you are. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was aware of that. I mean, if it was a new comic, I would never, even if they, like, they usually have a bad set. And I always, like, actually make a point to get, like, more applause for them. Like, oh, like, they give it up, like, the first time. That was great for the first time. Because yeah. I think that's, like, yeah, I, I keep in mind how good my first experience was because of the situation, because I had this huge audience. And I keep in mind, like, if I had started at an open mic where there was, like, four people that didn't want to be there, mm-hmm. how hard it would be to go up a second time. So yeah. I try to, like, be aware of that. I had the same situation, dude. Yeah. I started in college. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm from, from, like, 500 people and, like, felt good. Yeah. And yeah. I, I naively, um, you know, started hosting a room without, you know, even being a good comic at all. And, uh, yeah, baptized by fire, I guess, but... But like it, it, it's because of that. Mm-hmm. And here's what relating to you is I feel it's essential to support the comedians. Yeah, like, be very supportive. Definitely. Yeah, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I hate the like real competitive or like the beefs that happen in the like. It's all bullshit, dude. Yeah, we're, we're all, it doesn't matter how. Honestly, 
I think uh, Tom Afako, he put it the best way. He's like, unless you got a TV deal, unless you're really big out there, it don't matter whether you're a year in or 12 years in mm-hmm. or if you're funny. It doesn't matter. We're, yeah. we're, we're in the same boat. Right, right. What's the point of shitting this person if we're hitting the same mics? Yeah, and, yeah. And hitting the same crowds? Yeah. Yeah, there's no point. And like, I'll fall into it like sometimes like a moment of jealousy, but I always try to catch myself because, yeah, we're all, we're all kind of working towards the same goal. We're all doing the same thing. We're all sort of bad. Like we've all, I feel like we can all admit, like, like all the comedians in the area, like we have stuff to work on. So it's like, why get competitive and like mean to each other? There's no point. Although, although you know, you should acknowledge your jealousy, though. I think it's and you just use that energy for something, you know, productive. Yeah. You know, like for me, you know, I, I get, you know, I was like, oh, that fucker, he. He's fucking killing it. Right, right. But what does that yeah. say about me? It's, it tells, oh, why? Well, I, I got to do a better job of my own shit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and there's a little friendly co- competition with, you know, amongst friends. Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess my point is, like, uh, f- having these negative feelings is normal, mm-hmm. and it's bound to happen. Yeah. You know, for something so sensitive and something so creative, it's bound to happen. Anything creative, it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, when I do, when I screenwrite, when I make films or whatever, even music. Yeah. It, it's just, it, it, I learned the hard way of like turning that into productive energy. Yeah. Because I would just dwell on it. Right. Dwell on it and then I just project it on others and I'd look like a complete asshole. And like for me, that's my, like your, your worry is people perceive you as a, a nerdy guy, I guess. That's one of my worries. One of them. My, yeah. my worry is they perceive me as a fucking asshole. Cause <laughs> Interesting. Because yeah. I've done asshole things to people. I'm, uh-huh. I'll admit it. But uh-huh. it's never because I want to be. It's because I, I just, sometimes I just can't help it. <laughs> you worry about that on stage or off stage? Both. Okay. Yeah. Both. It's interesting. I've never got that impression from you on stage oh, good, good or off stage. Oh, I right. shouldn't specify. <laughs> well, maybe you just haven't been around me long enough. I don't <laughs> Who knows? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, definitely not from your comedy. I feel like you've got a pretty like like level-headed, borderline sweet persona on stage. I try. Yeah, it's good, man. All you can do is try. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm also I'm kind of excited about being. Like, I've been in this scene for like a year, a year and a half, or whatever. I'm excited to stay in it for longer and see the growth. Like, I'm excited to see someone go from, like, just starting to be, like, really well-respected or someone who's well-respected now, like, move on to whether it's L.A. or New York and try to make it there. Like, that part's kind of exciting to me. Why did you move to this part of of the country? Of the Bay Area? Yeah. Um, Because you're just out of college. You're looking for work, right? Yeah. Um, I knew I wanted to move to a completely different area than Michigan. Like I just wanted something new. Um, and I was still toying with the idea that I wanted to do something in neuroscience. So like, that's what I studied. And I mean, I moved out for a job in neuroscience. Um, and since then I realized it's not something that I really want to pursue right now. Like I don't want to do higher education in neuroscience right now. Um, but I was only applying to jobs in cities that I wanted to live in, like near San Francisco or near Austin or near Boston. Like I knew I wanted to live somewhere new and that was more, I I don't know, happening than where I was from. Um, So yeah, that was my motivation. Comedy was like, it was a very small motivator at the time because like I said, I wasn't taking it too seriously at the time. Um, And it just happened to be like a, a... like a happy coincidence, like or I don't know, consequence of moving here was that there's a great scene here. You know, 
Yeah. Because, yeah, I was wondering about that. I was like, why did you move here for comedy? I figured someone like you would be interested in L.A. or something. No, I, I still, I, I definitely wasn't ready a year and a half ago, and I which, still don't think which, I'm ready now. By the way, it's a smart move. Yeah, yeah, because you can get, I feel like that's a really easy place to get discouraged. Like, you either have to have your shit together when you move there, or you have to have really good willpower. Um, and I don't have really good willpower, so I'm going to try to get my shit together. Yeah, I'm pretty bad at both of those. Yeah. <laughs> we got time, though. We got plenty of time. Yeah. Um, uh, how you how can you best uh, describe the differences of the landscapes of maybe not just comedy, but entertainment in general, of where you were coming from, Michigan, and to here? Um, so... Politically, it's more even in Michigan. You'll have more conservatives and liberals in a crowd. Of um, course, man. It's a fucking yeah. echo chamber here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about creatively, though? Creatively? People, this is, it's hard for me to say this because I wasn't as motivated, but I felt like there weren't as many ambitious or motivated people where I was in terms of stand-up at that time. There weren't many as many people like really hustling. Um, there certainly are some, but not as many out here. So, like, I think part of the reason why I started doing it more when I moved out here is because all of my peers were doing it more. Like, they were like, oh, you're only going up once or twice a week? That's crazy. Like, we're, like, you got to go up way more than that. Not that anyone said that, but that's sort of the implication of everyone around me going up that many times. Um, so whereas in Michigan, there's a lot of people where they would maybe had one mic that they just did weekly. And it was more, I guess, like acceptable or like more commonplace for that to happen. Um, but I also, I wasn't really in a creative hub like with my school. Like I wasn't living in Ann Arbor where I'm sure there's a lot more going on. And I wasn't living in Detroit where I'm sure there's a lot more going on. Because Detroit scene is really growing right now from what I can uh, gather from the Facebook friends I still have. Like it seems like they're really... Um, they're moving to New to Detroit. Yeah, there's like a lot going on there. Um, they're like producing shows. There's like a comedy festival that's being produced. Um, they had uh, there's like this small bar that was like running a show um, ever since I was doing comedy there. But they had like Andy Kindler um, perform there, um, and uh, who's the other guy? Kurt Metzger. Mm-hmm. So like pretty big names for this small bar. Um, so it's, yeah, it just kind of signs that the scene there is growing. I think. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But I was much less in touch with the scene there, so it's hard for me to really speak about the differences with any, like, aptitude. I'd love to go back and do comedy there and see, like, if my perception of it has at all changed. Have you done... Have you been back since? Not to do comedy, no. I went to Michigan once, but um, it was for a wedding. Ooh, how was that? It was fun. It was, like, uh, my college friend's wedding. Um, it was my first friend to get married, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, get, get ready, they're coming. Yeah. <laughs> Just last summer alone, I had like five different friends, <laughs> and I, Jesus. Yeah. It's um, I don't know. That are you in a relationship? No, no, no. Yeah, it's, it's always hard to go into a friend's wedding when you're in a relationship because you're like, oh, what a when at least when everybody's getting married. Yeah. Like, oh, what a loser. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I get some of that, but it's also like I have no interest in marriage right now. Like, even if I was with, well, I can't say that, but I like I, I don't have any interest in like a committed relationship right now because I feel like I'm very just like floating around. Like, I feel very open to new experiences and like I can move like next year. And I don't want to have that be like a mutual decision, you know. But you still want companionship, don't you? 
Uh, sometimes. Yeah. I'm actually pretty comfortable being alone, I'd say, like, 80% of the time. Hmm. And then there's, like, certain times where, like, yeah, I crave that companionship or, like, intimacy. But I think that's a vast minority. I don't know if that's because I'm a freak or if it's just where I'm at in my life right now. But, yeah, I think I'm being honest with myself when I say that. Or it might just be, uh, like, a way to protect my ego about no one wanting to date me. I don't know which. You know, one or the other. I picked the first one because it makes me look, you know, more in control. Do you have any luck with the ladies over here? No. 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 Uh, the ladies here are a little tougher. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know. That dude, they come. They it, it's about to happen, man. Yeah, and I, like I said, I'm not worried about it. Like I'm, I. It's funny. I say I'm not worried about it, and then I go up on stage and talk about being single for half my set. So it's like, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe I'm more worried about it than I think I am. But um, well, in some ways, isn't there a theory that humor is a sense of a, of a competing with the good-looking people? Uh, yeah, you know, like, I believe that. Like, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> You, oh yeah you're dude. putting yourself out there in some you know subconscious way to look more attractive to women yeah i could see that because good looking comedians can go fuck themselves like, they, they definitely that. can they definitely can <laughs> like really funny good looking people it's like what are you doing come yeah. on get out of here uh, go, go uh, model the, that's why i'm always telling ryan Sadak and that he should just be a, a writer a comedy writer <laughs> just, no i'm just kidding uh but uh, Ryan, it's we're almost at an hour, man. Oh, so cool. so thank you for Flew coming, man. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I hope this is not your as. Uh, hope you did not have to talk about the same shit you did on your prior. Podcast. No, no, this has been all different. I think. Yeah. Good. 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 Yeah. Thanks see, for having see, me. See how like insecure I get now with my <laughs> podcast. Like, oh, right. well, what if we just talked about the same thing he did before? <laughs> yeah, the insecurity pervades everywhere, man. I understand. No worries. But I'm with uh, you. but what's the game plan for now? Game plan for now. Um, so I'm gonna go home, probably take a nap. Um, no, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't really have too much of a plan. My one goal is just to keep getting better. Um, so going up a bunch, and I really want to start writing more. Yeah. And then I guess like my goal way down the road that I've set for myself is I would love to get like passed at a comedy club. Like that's that would be a huge landmark for me. I think. Cool. Last yeah. question. Hard hitting question. I saved it for for the last. Oh shit! All right. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. How come you haven't visited for Scotty yet? I have. Huh, oh. My room's not good enough no. for you? Um, honestly, you have to be there at, like, what is it, 6.30? You have? No, no, I, I've been there once. 7.30. You have to, That's when the list goes up, but don't you have to show up earlier to, like, no? The, the time I went, I got there, like, at 7.30, and there was kind of that deal where, like, people had been waiting, so they all signed up before me. Yeah. And I was, like, 21st on the list, and I was trying to... It was Wait, that, this is way before me, then. Really? Was I hosting? Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember the details. I'd never get 25 I'll people be there, coming. <laughs> it, you, there were that night. It was packed. It was like, I was definitely like down the list towards 20. Oh. Well, yeah. I know you now. And you're a cool guy. All right, cool. So, uh, I'll be there. I'll yeah. squeeze you in. All right, sounds good. Yeah, don't worry. I will be there. <laughs> Shit, I, I wasn't a dick to you at, at the time. No, it wasn't like that at all. Yeah, okay. it wasn't like that at all. Um, you should have a cigarette. People do show up early, but to hang out. Yeah. I just had this impression that it was like I, I had to be there at a certain time that it was hard for me to get there from work, but that's probably not true. So I'll put it in my rotation for sure. I'll be there. 7.30? 7.30, okay. I'll be there. 6.30, Jesus. Yeah, I don't know what it was. So, so you had to do that, man. <laughs> I just had this. Maybe someone told me that so I wouldn't show up. They're like, fuck <laughs> this guy. You have to be here at 6. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? All right, Ryan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, man.
hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. I hope that was a, that was a fun one. I had a good time with that one. A lot to relate to. Next week we have a returning guest coming back. I haven't had this person here for a little over than a year. Uh, actually, more than a year. So she is stopping by. We're gonna have a nice chat. So look forward for next week's episode. Friendly reminder once again to please follow the JMS podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right. I want you guys to to uh, come on board this social media journey with me, and we can all be friends. And that's something they can never really have too much is friends. Actually, I don't know. Maybe you can't have too many friends. Depends. Well, maybe this is a conversation for another time. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week. Have a good one, guys. And uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Stay strong. Keep doing what you're doing.